Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brookmarkle, and coming up on the program, we'll talk with Ben Green, author of the book Before His Time, The Untold Story of Harry T. Moore, America's First Civil Rights Martyr. I think it was a political assassination. I don't think it was just some old racist Klansman said, let's take out that uppity so-and-so. I think it was because he had registered 100,000 black voters. We'll discuss back issues of Florida Highways Magazine. They're really trying to inform people about Florida's roads rather than just talking about new development. And talk about automobility in the Jim Crow era. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. It seems I hear Harry Moore from the earth, his voice still cries. No bomb can kill the dreams I hold, for freedom never dies. On Christmas night, 1951, a bomb exploded under the home of educator and activist Harry T. Moore. The home was in Mims, Florida, just north of Titusville and east of Orlando. Both Moore and his wife Harriet died from injuries sustained in the blast. The book Before His Time, The Untold Story of Harry T. Moore, America's First Civil Rights Martyr, is being published in a new edition with updated material. Ben Green is author of this comprehensive biography. Harry Moore grew up in a little place called Houston, uh, outside of Live Oak, which is just really a hole in the wall. I mean, there's just nothing there, no stop sign, traffic light. Um, his father died when he was young. Uh, his father worked on the railroads, taking care of the big water tanks for the steam engines. And his mother worked in the cotton fields, and then she had a little store, basically just a little shack where she sold candy and soda pops and goods like that. After the death of Harry's father, the young boy was sent to live with three aunts in Jacksonville, Florida. All three were well-educated, professional women. I think that was the other part, that it he got out of the country and not just living with these three women who were talking politics and literature and world events, but the black community in Jacksonville was vibrant and alive with culture and black owned businesses. So I really think it, it really just opened up the world to him. Harry T. Moore left Jacksonville to become a teacher. He made his way to Brevard County in 1925 to teach at the Cocoa Colored School and was later promoted to principal of the Titusville Negro School. One of the things uh, about that I don't think many people realize is even as late as the 1930s, only half of the counties in Florida had a black high school. So if you wanted to go beyond elementary school uh, to school, often you had to go out of town, you had to go away. So Harry left Jacksonville and actually went back to Live Oak and uh, went to Florida Memorial College, which was located there. It was a college, but also had a high school program. So he graduated in 1925 with a normal degree, basically a teaching certificate, and got a job in uh, Cocoa teaching in Brevard County. Soon after arriving in Brevard County, Harry T. Moore met his soulmate, Harriet Vita Sims. The couple was married on Christmas Day, 1926. 
Well, I think that's it's an interesting thing. They were both very sort of sober, serious people. They met at a card party, at a whist party. And she was an older woman. She was like two years older than he was. But obviously, they hit it off. Uh, he used to tell his daughters it was love at first sight. Uh, and so very quickly, they got married. And her parents sort of gave them a piece of land on their property in this grove, and they built a house and started a family. Education was important in the Moore household. The entire family, Harry, Harriet, and daughters Peaches and Evangeline, would all graduate from Bethune-Cookman College in Daytona. Harry T. Moore's civil rights activities, including an effort to equalize pay for black and white teachers, would lead to him being forced to resign from the Brevard County school system. Ben Green. I think he started his activism with what he knew best, which was education. And so uh, through his involvement with the Florida State Teachers Association, which was the black teacher organization, he filed the first lawsuit in the Deep South to equalize black and white teacher salaries. Black teachers, black principals made basically half what their white counterparts did. Uh, that was also the first time that he interacted with Thurgood Marshall. Uh, Thurgood Marshall had filed the first lawsuit, had won the first lawsuit in the country to equalize black and white teacher salaries. But that was in Maryland, border state, um, and Thurgood was working for the NAACP already. So Harry Moore wrote him a letter and said, we, we want to move on this uh, in Florida. And it was the first, I think, of many interactions that they had. After losing his teaching job, Harry T. Moore had more time to dedicate to his civil rights activities. He founded the Brevard County branch of the NAACP and created the Progressive Voters League. There were three big things that he worked on. One was teacher salaries, the other would be voter registration, and then the third would be lynchings. But um, really, this is another juncture where he and Thurgood Marshall came together. Uh, in 1941, Thurgood Marshall won the Supreme Court decision, Smith v. Allwright, that outlawed the white primary, um, which was the only election that mattered in the Deep South. Uh, Harry Moore immediately organized the Progressive Voters League in Florida and started registering black Floridians in the Democratic Party. After forming the Brevard County branch of the NAACP, Moore became active with the organization on the state level. The relationship between Moore and the national office was sometimes contentious. Ben Green, author of Before His Time. This is one of the most surprising things I found when I started doing this book. I thought I was writing a book about an NAACP hero, and I found out that actually there was tremendous tension, conflict between Moore and the national office in New York. I think there were two things. One is his political activism. The NAACP was supposed to be nonpartisan, and Harry T. Moore understood that if you're not registered in the Democratic Party in Florida, it does no good. And so he started pushing to register and eventually registered over 100,000 blacks in the Democratic Party. At the same time, most of the black leadership in the NAACP were Republicans because that was the only party they could be part of and they'd sort of get crumbs thrown their way. And so he built, he got some resentment from black leaders in Florida, particularly in big cities because he was a small town guy. But then more so, I think the national office didn't like it because he became a paid executive secretary and all the money he was raising to pay his own salary could have gone to New York. 
After Harry T. Moore was killed, the NAACP was quick to claim him as one of their own, even though he had been fired. Yeah, it was really one of the most tragic parts of this. And actually the thing, more than anything, that angered Evangeline Moore is when she found out when my book came out that they went out of their way to, they actually fired him before he was killed. And then as soon as he was killed, I described it as they became a cottage industry of raising money off Harry T. Moore and they had fundraisers all around the country and in New York and Madison Square Garden raising money for the NAACP based on his murder. The murders of Harry T. and Harriet V. Moore have never been solved. It's possible that it was Moore's activities registering African Americans to vote that led to a bomb being placed under his home. Others believe it was his involvement in the infamous Groveland rape trial that inspired this act of domestic terrorism. I think it was a political assassination. I don't think it was just some old racist Klansman said, let's take out that uppity so-and-so. I think it was because he had registered 100,000 black voters in the Democratic Party the night of his death at Christmas dinner at his mother-in-law's house in the Grove. One of the last conversations he had with his best friend from Coco was about how the black vote was going to determine the outcome of the 1952 governor's race. And he was going around the state saying the black vote will determine the outcome of every election in Florida. And I think that's why he was killed. I think he was killed to try to suppress black election power. And it worked. Black voter registration plummeted after his death. It took another 10 or 15 years till the civil rights movement to get it back to where it was. So I, I think it was a political assassination more than just a individual hate crime. In 1949, Harry T. Moore was actively involved in seeking justice for four young black men accused of raping a white woman in Groveland. One of the accused was killed by law enforcement before he could be arrested. The other three men were tortured during questioning and had evidence manufactured against them by the notoriously racist sheriff Willis McCall. The Supreme Court overturned the original convictions and a new trial was scheduled. Ben Green. The day of a hearing for the new trial, Willis McCall and his deputy went to Rayford to pick him up on the way back to Lake County, claimed that the two prisoners jumped him and attacked him and he shot him. He emptied his revolver into him. He killed Sam Shepard, mortally, seriously, critically wounded Walter Irvin, who did survive, and told a completely different story, which is that McCall just yanked him out and started shooting. At that point, Harry T. Moore started calling for McCall to be removed from office, indicted for murder. Uh, he's telegramming and writing letters to the governor, to the U.S. attorney, to Thurgood Marshall, to the FBI, and then just six weeks later, he was blown up in his house. So the morning after the bombing in MIMS, people immediately connected the Groveland case to the Moore bombing. And when the FBI agents and the local deputies worked their way through the crowd that had gathered and said, why would anyone have wanted to kill Harry Moore? Everybody immediately said Groveland. Harry T. and Harriet V. Moore were killed 12 years before Medgar Evers, 14 years before Malcolm X, and 17 years before Martin Luther King Jr., but their legacy has been often overlooked. In a way, I think they're like multiple tragedies. One is they were killed, and the murders have never been solved. 
And then, in some ways, it's almost equally tragic they were forgotten. Um, I feel like the most poignant epitaph, really, is he was killed three years too early. If he had been killed in 1954, after the Brown decision, he would be Medgar Evers. He was Medgar Evers. He just did it before anybody was paying attention. He would have been in every history book. Everybody would have known his name. But it was 1951. There was no civil rights movement. There were no TV cameras filming the dogs attacking children in Birmingham. The murders were not solved. It was really just forgotten about. In recent years, Harry T. and Harriet V. Moore have been getting some of the recognition they deserve. An exhibit about the Moors is on display at the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington, D.C. The Harry T. and Harriet V. Moore Cultural Complex, built on the Moore family homestead in Mims, Florida, has a civil rights museum, a reflecting pool, and a replica of the Moore family home. It's been slow and gradual. There have been other contributions, the documentary film that PBS did. There's a song, you know, The Ballad of Harry T. Moore. You can find that on YouTube, Sweet Honey in the Rock. But I bet you if you went to Brevard County and took a poll, I bet still the majority of the people there don't even know who he is. I mean, the courthouse is named after him. There's the cultural center. I think they still, in a way, are fighting a losing battle against the tourist industry in Florida and the fact that how many people who moved here just came here in the last four, five, ten years. I didn't say this, but I think it's valid. He was our Martin Luther King. He was Florida's Martin Luther King, and yet I still think the majority of Floridians don't know who he is, not to mention probably 95% of, at least, of Americans have no idea who he is. Ben Green is author of the book Before His Time, The Untold Story of Harry T. Moore, America's First Civil Rights Martyr. A new edition of the book with updated material is being published by the Florida Historical Society Press. And this he says, our Harry Moore, as from the grave he cries. No bomb can kill the dreams I hold, for freedom never dies. Freedom never dies, I say, freedom never dies. No bomb can kill the dreams I hold, for freedom never dies. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find out about upcoming events, listen to archived editions of this program, watch our public television series, Florida Frontiers, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. On the road again. Just can't wait to get on the road again. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, people who sit in traffic on Florida's highways and state roads might not be big fans of this infrastructure, but people were excited when the roads were first created. 
Yeah, that's right, Ben. Today, it might be hard to imagine getting excited about a new road project. But back around the beginning of the 20th century, this really was a big deal. And this goes back to uh, right around 1880 with a, a national movement, what was called the Good Roads Movement. And again, it's hard to imagine, but the majority of the United States and, and a large part of Florida did not have any kind of paved or improved roads. These were essentially just dirt paths that had been around since the mid-19th century and sometimes even earlier. And at certain times of the year, especially especially during the, the rainy season in the summertime, these roads were completely flooded and washed out and, and were impassable. And it became a national issue. So this good roads movement started in, in the United States, and Florida really became a part of that movement because we had a lot of tourists who were coming down to Florida, especially the beginning of the 20th century. And believe it or not, the movement started not with automobile drivers, but with bicyclists, which had become a national pastime in the late 19th century. But of course, soon as the proliferation of the personal automobile became kind of a, a big thing in the beginning of the 20th century, that really changed the focus of this good roads movement. And, and again, Florida was really at the forefront. And it wasn't until about 1916, with the passage of the Federal Aid Road Act in 1916, it's also known as the Bankhead Act, that freed up federal money to, it was kind of like a 50-50 matching arrangement between states and the federal government to build improved roads. And, and oftentimes these were kind of a mixed use of rock, gravel, uh, somewhere concrete roads. So they were still, by today's standards, fairly rudimentary, but it was revolutionary for a lot of the rural parts of the country, including Florida. These small towns that were connected by dirt and sand horse trails were now connected by these wide two-lane roads that were being maintained now by the state. So in 1915, Florida created the State Road Department, and in 1921, they passed another, the federal government passed another act that allocated even more money after the end of the First World War, again, to try and bolster the construction, improvement, and maintenance of paved roads throughout the state of Florida. There's a magazine that was published for a number of years called Florida Highways, and you have some issues here. Yeah, we're looking at a, a selection of issues from the FHS archives that range in date from about 1925 all the way up through 1953. And Florida Highways, as you said, the title of the publication was produced by the Florida State Road Department. And it, essentially when it started in the early 1920s, it was really just kind of a collection of what was going on within the state road department. So any new contracts that were signed, any improvements to, in terms of mileage that were reported during a certain time period, this was a monthly magazine. So every month you could get this magazine and figure out how many miles of new improved roads were being laid down within the state of Florida. But they also had some interesting articles. And the earliest edition we have that we're looking at here is from January of 1925. And it's actually in beautiful shape. We've got a color image on the front cover, and it shows this really nice kind of idyllic looking road with oak trees over top. And this is one of those improved roads. Now, again, today, we might think of this as a, a semi-dirt road, but at the time, this, these were major, major improvements. And as I mentioned before, the Good Roads Movement was a, a national initiative, and Florida was a big part of that. In fact, there were several articles dedicated to the Good Roads Movement in this January 1925 issue. But there's also another interesting article that's uh, writing in favor of a gasoline tax. We're at the very beginnings of personal automobile use. We take it for granted today, but Florida in particular that relied on a lot of tourism traffic, they had to figure out a way to pay for these roads. So local taxes certainly worked for, for certain institutions, but when it came to roads, if people from out of state were using the road, the theory was if we taxed the gasoline, then they would in turn pay for the road. So anybody using the road had to buy gasoline and they would then pay for the tax. And now that's a big part of the, the price that you pay at the pump today includes this gasoline tax. 
tax. And they were starting to have that argument in the 1920s and, and figure out a way to help fund these roads because a lot of the projects, as I said before, the federal government and the state government added funds. Oftentimes, these were 50-50 matching funds. But there were also a lot of public-private partnerships. Uh, one of the famous examples would be the Dixie Highway stretched all the way from Canada down to Miami. And that was a way to bring, especially in the 1920s, to bring people what we call the tin can tourists, who were not the wealthy, gilded age tourists who were coming to Florida during the wintertime, but people who had a car, packed everything up, and, and essentially slept on the side of the roads. And they relied on this type of improvement. Now, as we look through the years of different articles, the magazine certainly changed in terms of the physical size, the scope of the content. That's probably the most important thing that changed. We're looking at an edition here from July of 1942. So this is the beginnings of, of the U.S. involvement in the Second World War, and roads are becoming increasingly more important for the wartime traffic. So all of that wear and tear on the roads, the, uh, they needed to maintain that during the war, and there are several articles dedicated to that maintenance, but there's also kind of an interesting article here written by the editors that talks a little bit about the new publication and the fact that they changed the magazine. I'll just read here simply a quote. This is some of the feedback that the magazine editors were getting from local newspapers. This is from the Lakeland Ledger. It says here, quote, some department publications in Florida and other states are mostly dry compendiums filled with unimportant and uninterpreted statistics. Florida Highways, however, has variety, punch, and timeliness, unquote. So for a government-produced publication, that's uh, quite an endorsement. And the last edition we're looking at here from uh, 1953, by this time they had gotten away from just, you know, listing contracts and advertisements about culverts and things like that, and it really became a tourism magazine. So this January 1953 edition lists a lot of local roadside attractions. They talk about improvements in laws regarding motor vehicles and the state, and, and they're really trying to inform people about Florida's roads rather than just talking about new development. And for those who are interested in exploring further, you have a really good collection of these uh, Florida Highway magazines here at the Library of Florida History. Thanks, Ben. Sure, thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. And I can't wait to get on the road. This is Florida Frontiers. The invention of the automobile led to greater freedom for Americans. As University of Central Florida public historian Holly Baker explains, for some, that freedom was limited. Historian Dr. Fawn Gordon recently wrote an article for the Florida Historical Quarterly Journal called Early Motoring in Florida, Making Car Culture and Race in the New South, 1903 to 1943. In her article, Dr. Gordon explained that black drivers in Florida and all over the South were both liberated and controlled while on the road during the time of segregation. Car culture in Florida was always racialized. You know, we're talking about the rise of Jim Crow in the 1890s. By the time of the first decade of the 20th century, when Henry Ford was successful with his first car, when he formed the Ford Motor Company in 1903, and General Motors was formed in 1908. At the same time, this was the same period as for whites-only signs, as well as for colored-only. So even the races at Daytona Beach in January of 1903, 1904, 1905, those races were segregated 
While certainly it was possible to be black and to attend and to watch, those who participated were white. Not only were they all white, but they were all white male as well. So there was this sense that automobility was about the mobility of whites in general and the mobility of white men in particular. The invention of the automobile transformed American culture and society. When the Ford Motor Company introduced the affordable and durable Model T in 1908, Many Americans dreamed of driving one. By 1927, 15 million Americans owned a Model T. The automobile soon became a symbol of personal freedom and status. For African Americans during the time of segregation, owning an automobile had an even deeper meaning. Driving automobiles gave African Americans a sense of freedom and allowed them to subvert some aspects of Jim Crow. At the same time, American car culture facilitated racial segregation and control. Well, certainly automobility challenged the racial hierarchy of the New South because African Americans drove. And there was a feeling or hope, this notion of whiteness as ideology, that black Americans were not competent enough to handle a motor car. But of course, they could handle motor cars. They were mechanics on motor cars, chauffeurs, as well as drivers of motor cars. Certainly racial hierarchy was accommodated by automobility because despite the fact that African Americans could own cars and could drive cars, nevertheless they were not accorded the same civilities and courtesies as other motorists on the road because they could not enjoy the accoutrements of lodging and dining. They were shut out from those amenities, but they could drive, but certainly racial hierarchy was upheld with those other restrictions. As Dr. Gordon explains, Florida Highways Magazine, first published in the 1920s, intentionally excluded the mention of African-American drivers. Well, Florida Highways was the official magazine of the State Road Department. The State Road Department was established by the legislature in 1915, but the magazine itself was not published until December of 1923. Throughout its publication history, it was a magazine, it was an instrument of, again, whiteness's ideology. At the same time that Florida was segregated and excluded its black citizens, Florida Highways did the same thing. Blacks were not included in the magazine unless it was uh, in a derisive, derogatory manner. In the Jim Crow era, African-American drivers looked to a publication known as the Negro Motorist Green Book to help them navigate the roads safely during segregation. In the 1940 Green Book, there were only 10 hotels and one restaurant in the entire state of Florida listed as safe for black travelers. Dr. Gordon has more on Green Books. The Green Books were started by Victor Green in 1936, and they were a result of the fact that while African Americans owned cars and drove cars around the country, they were employed as chauffeurs and mechanics. And certainly by 1934, there were black owners of gasoline franchises, such as S.O., Mobile Oil, etc., but despite that, black Americans were prohibited from most lodging and dining amenities. So the Green Book helped African Americans to navigate the nation, the South as a region in particular, as well as outside of the South, those places where they could find gas and use the bathrooms and where they could find food as well as lodging. The Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965 overruled Jim Crow and Green Books stopped being published. Still, African Americans continued to face discrimination while on the road. Dr. Gordon. I think it's important for us to remember that there's always been a tension between black bodies and the road. Even in the antebellum period, that was certainly the point of the Underground Railroad, the fact that they wanted to escape the institution of slavery. 
And certainly that was true in the first half of the 19th century. And it remains true with the coming of the automobile. It was about uh, trying to achieve a sense of mobility within colonization, within colonialism. And certainly for African Americans, as for Native Americans, and for most non-white groups in the United States, certainly in the first half of the 20th century, automobility helped to remove oneself from that state, at least temporarily. For Florida Frontiers, I am Holly Baker, radio and podcast producer with the Public History Program at the University of Central Florida. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. You can also listen as a podcast. Join us anytime on Facebook and at myfloridahistory.org. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase, Robert Casanello, and Holly Baker. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.